0: Let me invite you to open up to the 20th chapter in the book of Acts today. And in a moment, we're going to pick up in verse 16, about halfway through the chapter. Before we do that, though, it's it's helpful for us, again, always to be thinking about the context and the, the nature of the narrative we're in. And even though maybe you're feeling like we've been in the book of Acts forever, we've been here almost, you know, five months, I think now as a church, there there's a tendency sometimes when we read these narratives to think, you know, only a short period of time has gone by, you know, from one event to the next. But if we went back to the the morning of Pentecost, which sort of kicks off the book of Acts, up to this present chapter, Acts 20 we've probably spanned over two decades of time in the life of the church. You know, 20 or more years has passed since Pentecost. And the church, like, like people, like other communities or families or organizations, has a life cycle, right? There, there are, are things that happen over a period of time and patterns of maturity that, that take place. But there are also times where, where that next step in maturity requires a, a new stage, a new step, and potentially a, a transition or a handoff. So today we're, we're going to be thinking about some of those next steps of maturity, particularly for the church in Ephesus, but, but also for the church universal. All right, how do we grow through the life cycle of, of mission that God has us on as a people? I think just about every group or organization we could identify that, that has some staying power and has something they want to, to hand off into the future arrives at moments or seasons in its life cycle where, where there's a passing of the torch that takes place. Family businesses right, face this challenge when, when it's time to hand off to the next generation. Larger corporations and CEOs often groom a successor to take over for them, and even causes and, and movements have this burden as well. For the past 60 years or more, John Perkins uh, has been synonymous with uh, the work of the civil rights movement in the United States, and in particular, he's been a a visionary leader among evangelicals calling the church to embrace the the rich diversity and unity that we have as the people of God, as people reconciled by the blood of Jesus. I've been reading uh, part of his book that he wrote uh, just in the past two years. This came out, I think, in 2018, and he wrote it at the, the vigorous young age of 88 years old when he took up his pen to write this. And the title of the book is One Blood. The subtitle is Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love. And as the subtitle suggests, it's, it's sort of his last expression, his last communique to the church that he wants to, to hand off at the end of his life. Early in the book, Lewis observes, or sorry, Perkins observes this. He observes how crucial this present moment is for seasoned leaders to be cultivating and and developing and mentoring the next generation. He talks about the the handing off of generational batons. He says this is a crucial moment to keep cultivating the soils of justice and mercy and, and the deep unity that we have offered to us in the person and the body of Jesus. That, that is a, a crucial moment in the life of our nation, in the life of the American church. I wonder what other crucial moments or, or transitions we are facing as God's people right here in Jericho. Right? What sort of transitions, what sort of batons need to be passed in order for the mission and the purpose of God in this place, to to keep going into a new generation. We're always making these handoffs in in both little and big ways. We need to know not just how to make chicken pies in the next generation or how to run the annual meeting, but we're also handing off what it looks like to have an enduring and faithful marriage. We need mentors in those ways. We need mentors to demonstrate what it looks and feels like to love our enemies. We need mentors to teach us how to make and walk with new disciples. We need people to demonstrate what it looks like to hold the hand of God even as we walk through the valley of the shadow in our life. In order for leadership and maturity and mission to persist here at JCC. We depend on these lived, living examples of wisdom. So I want to ask us this morning, what are we doing? How are we doing with our torches, so to speak? If you are among the, the generations who have preceded my own here in this place, Right? How are we doing at passing them off, handing them on with the encouragement and, and exhortation and wisdom that's required? And if you're among the, the generations that are coming up, right? how are we doing at receiving those torches graciously, but also with, with courage and with intention and purpose? I ask that question because I think as we look at the 20th chapter of Acts today, we we see the church, particularly there in Ephesus, at one of these torch-passing, baton-passing moments in mission. Paul gathers together a group of leaders, and I think he wants to charge them with what is required for missional maturity to continue among them even as he moves on. So we're in Acts 20. We'll pick up in verse 16. Let me pray for us as we look into the word of God together. Lord Jesus, you know us as a people. And you know not just us individually, but you know us as a church body, as a family, as a community that develops and is in need of ongoing maturation. Lord, would you speak words of encouragement to us today? Illuminate the examples you have provided for us, but also challenge us to imitate and to risk and to grow into the mission you have before us as well. Lord, as we look to your living word this morning, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts as we receive these words be pleasing in your sight. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So again, to to help us sort of make the transition between chapter 19 and 20, when we last left Paul last week, he was fleeing Ephesus. Again, there was this riot. He, he left, you know, barely with his life intact. And in the months that followed, he went on another one of these incredible journeys that Paul is, is known for in the book of Acts. He, he sort of makes this circuit around the Aegean coast. He goes back through Macedonia. He travels down into Greece again, visiting all of the churches that he's helped to plant along the way. And as he arrives kind of in the the southern end of Greece, he's planning to sail from there back to Jerusalem because along the way what Acts doesn't tell us much about but what we read a lot about in the epistles of Paul is that he is collecting an offering. He's collecting financial resources which he hopes to take to the church in Jerusalem uh, because they are, are facing famine, they're facing poverty. And so Paul's heart is to to allow this emerging Gentile church to bless the church in Jerusalem. But he gets to southern Greece, and there's a plot afoot. He can't get on the ship to sail back, and so he actually travels overland all the way back up through Macedonia, back over uh, into Asia Minor, and he gets on a ship uh, there at Assos, and he begins to sail back to Jerusalem. But along the way... Several days into that journey, the, the ship pulls into port at the city or, or, or port of Miletus. And Paul feels a, a pull to stop and and to listen to what God has for him in that place. Let's pick up in verse 16. It says Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible by the day of Pentecost. Right, he's got this offering that he's eager to deliver there. But from Miletus, Paul sent Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of the severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit... can imagine Paul pulling into the port there in Miletus and, and sensing almost in his bones the, the proximity of Ephesus. Right? He probably could see it as they sailed past to the south, and I'm sure being back in that region right, stirred his, his memories of his friends there, of, of the hardships, the, the trauma that he endured there, but also the real victories that we read about of the gospel taking root in that city. And so he, he pauses in Miletus and he decides not to travel back to Ephesus. It's about 30 miles overland to go back to the city. But he chooses instead to send for the leaders of that church and ask them to meet him there in the port of Miletus. And that, that may have been for, for a couple of reasons. We don't know why Paul wouldn't go to Ephesus. Maybe it was too dangerous for him to return to the city. Right? He was sort of a, an enemy of the state at this point. Some commentators also suggest it would be unwise for Paul to leave his companions there because they have such a sizable financial gift. They have a significant amount of money they're traveling with back to Jerusalem. And so he, he stays with the ship, but he sends for his friends. And I picture them, you know, two or three days later arriving at the Aegean Sea there with Paul. Perhaps they sat down to a meal together. And Paul begins to to speak to his friends, right? He has things that are heavy on his heart to share with them. And beginning in verse 18, Paul starts out in a reflective mood. Verse 18 looks backward on the three years he shared together with his friends in Ephesus. And he remembers how they've labored together for the gospel in that place. Paul reflects to them about his times of testing and trial in that city. But he also reminds them of how he proclaimed the gospel boldly in that place, publicly. But then he also did the careful and maybe more intimate work of of pastoring. He went from house to house, from living room to living room. Right, following up that word as it grew in their lives. He gives them, he says, he has given them the message of repentance and faith in Jesus. He's poured out his life for three years. And I think what Paul is saying to them is more than anything else, he has been a living witness. He has been a living example of what a person in mission with Jesus looks like. Paul has has shown them what someone in mission with Jesus works like. What someone in mission with Jesus talks like. How they eat, how they sweat, how they suffer, how they sing, how they worship, right? They have seen Paul do these things for three years. Paul says in verse 18, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. You've got a clear picture of my life and example. And so Paul, I think, has called this, this group of people, these group of leaders together, first to remind them of his previous example, right? To recall with them. It's like opening up the photo book and going back through the past memories. Remember when we did this. Remember when I did this with you. Remember this example that I have given you and gifted you as as an apostle, as a brother, as a mentor in the faith. To be part of the mission of God, we need faithful examples. We don't lead ourselves. We are always being led by the Spirit, but also by the people the Spirit has put in our lives. So I want you to take just 10 seconds right now, close your eyes, and I, like like Pete already asked us this morning, who have been the shepherds in your life? Who have been those faithful examples to you? Maybe this year, maybe 10 years, maybe 30 years ago, who are the living witnesses of mission and faith God has placed in your life? Let's take 10 seconds to prayerfully maybe remember their faces, remember the, the places you've You've spent time with them. Who are those examples to you? As you remember those faces and times and people, I wonder how much of who you are today was shaped by the contribution they made, your habits, your attitudes, the things you care about. As a young man, I had numerous mentors. I had a young life leader that invested deeply in me. I had a youth pastor who shepherded me. I had roommates and and friends in college. I had teachers and professors, right? I've had brothers and sisters from other nations mentor and, and lead and show me an example of what pouring my life out, living my life with Jesus and for Jesus looks like. Without their faithful examples, I wouldn't be here in mission with you today. And so I've done my best to receive that example of faithfulness and then also begin to open up space in my own life to invite others into the example I'm living and our family is living, however imperfect that example is, to pass those things along. Paul begins his, his meal or his moment here with the, the leadership in Ephesus by looking backward, by saying, Remember all the things you've seen me doing and being and investing in. Because starting in verse 22, the, the tenses of the verbs shift. Instead of looking back on what has been, now things move to looking into the present moment and toward the future. Starting in verse 22, Paul describes a new leg of the race God has given him to run. And it's, it's a leg of that race that will lead him away from Asia Minor, away from Ephesus and toward Jerusalem. And that means a change for Paul. It also means there is a change pending or coming for his friends in Ephesus as well. Look at verses 25 and following. He says, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. This is, this is goodbye, Paul says. Therefore, he says, this is goodbye, but, but because I'm leaving, therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. on your guard remember that for 3 years i never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears here in the, the middle of this this speech that paul gives this is i think him signaling it's it's that time it's that handoff moment right the torch is about to be passed from paul to this group of shepherds and leaders. Paul has this, this sense from the Holy Spirit somehow that he will not be back to this city, to this region again in his lifetime. And so that means that the future of mission, the future of God's church in Ephesus now is not Paul's responsibility, it's being handed off to this group of leaders that he's speaking to. And so he says, during the time I was among you, I have taught you the whole will of God. I've taught you everything I know. I've lived that example. I've taught you everything I know about what Jesus taught me. And so in verse 28, he says, now it's your turn. He says, now keep watch over yourselves and over the flock the Spirit has given to you. Leaders have to receive the, the responsibility to do both of these things, both the, to, to be intimate, intimate enough with Jesus, to be sustained enough by his spirit, to be healthy and well ourselves, right? to invite community and, and to invite the kind of support we need to be in mission with Jesus, but then also to love the flock, to love the church that God is leading in mission. In essence, Paul seems to be saying that in the past, I was your living example. In the past, I was with you. You could watch me. You could learn from me. But now, things are shifting. Now, instead of just giving you an example, I'm giving you a charge. Giving you the charge to imitate my example. Missional maturity not only requires an example for us to witness, but it requires us taking the next step to then imitate that example, right? to move from watching to doing. I remember a time in my mid-20s when I spent most of my free time, most of my life uh, hanging out and, and discipling college students, hanging out with and discipling college students. But right around my mid-20s, I met Katie, and my life and my habits and my free time suddenly started to shift. And I didn't have, you know, late nights to hang out every night of the week with you know kids that were 18 or 19 and 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 less time to process with them and, and just be available. And so God was moving me on into a new season that He had prepared. But I was kind of struggling with how that was changing my availability and, and my old, you know, uh, just patterns and habits. And so one day I was having lunch with one of these college students who had become a, clear, uh, a close friend. And, and feeling a little bit guilty about how long it had been since we had hung out last. And, and he could sort of sense and perceive that and he stopped in the middle of lunch and he said, Dave, I just want you to know I'm really grateful for the door God has opened in your life, and for, for the fact that you and Katie have found each other and the time you're spending together with one another. He says, because I am watching you, and all of, all of these friends, all of my, my friends who are college students, we are watching you because you're going ahead of us, right? We're gonna be there soon and we need some examples. We need some people to watch so that we know what to do so that we have mentors to guide us. My friend Adam, he was expressing his gratitude not only at having an example, but also because he realized that he would soon need to be practicing his own imitation of that example. In fact, two years after Katie and I were married, Adam found himself falling in love with someone and Katie and I were able to walk with them right, through, through their premarital counseling. We, we literally were there as they walked down the aisle with one another. Right, there's this pattern between example and then the imitation of that example, the application of that example. And so Paul is, is charging them with, with seriousness, with, with the gravity of the, the need for them to now act upon his example in Ephesus here. He says, having shared the truth of Jesus with you, right now, your fate is up to you. He says, either choose to, to grow into, to become these shepherds of the church, either choose to, to love what Jesus has given his own blood to purchase, or else, Paul says, your blood will be upon your own heads. Right? He says, this is Responsibility is no longer mine. It's yours to pick up. And he warns them that it will not be easy. He warns them of of wolves there in Ephesus, right? Of the resistance that they will encounter in taking the baton from him. But he says, imitate me. Enter into this. And he says, as that handoff happens, there is a future power. There is a future presence that will be with you in that work. The last thing Paul says is about this future grace that will sustain them as they begin to imitate him. Look at verses 32 to the end of the chapter. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words The Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved him most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul has... Reminded them of his example. He's charged them with now imitating that example. And now he wants to to leave them, to exhort them into the power and the word and the grace of God to lead them forward. But it's clear from verse 38 that this is a moment of of heaviness and sadness. This is disrupting the, the status quo and equilibrium in Ephesus. But I think there's a sense in which this difficult moment is also a a kairos moment. A moment in time where significant change is both necessary and possible because God is, is opening up that opportunity. Pastor Mike Breen, who we've been reading about in these missional church conversations, he talks about these kairos moments. Kairos is a Greek word for time. It's a a sense of time being pregnant or full of possibility. And he says that from his experience in ministry and in mission, that often it's the most difficult, it's the most negative, it's the most destabilizing times of his life. That God opens up the greatest potential for growth and discipleship. That maybe is a reassuring word for us as we sort of make our way through this pandemic. That God can use the most difficult times for the greatest amount of growth. But he says in order for kairos moments, transitional moments, to be growing moments, we have to do two things. We have to listen for the voice of God in those moments. What is God saying? What is God speaking? What is God calling forth and then we need to make sure we respond that we take a step toward the voice of God and I think that's what Paul is commending to his friends here in verse 32 he says even if I am absent even as I leave you all behind he says I am leaving you in the custody of God's care God remains here with you you are now in His hands, Paul is saying. So that the, when, the, when the wolves come, when you're discouraged, when you're being torn down, when you're afraid, when you are weary, Paul says you need to be listening for the word of His grace to you. The voice of God's grace, the word of His grace, because he says that word is has the power to build you up and to give you an inheritance among God's holy people. Paul says, even when I move on, the word of God to you, the presence of God to you, the power of God to you in mission remains working night and day. And so if we're going to keep growing into missional maturity as a church... We also need the strengthening power of grace working on us. We need grace to keep speaking God's word to us generation after generation. I think it's reassuring to me that mission, from God's point of view, is all about gift. It's all about grace. Mission is all about God making something out of nothing. Mission is not about how hard we work, though certainly Paul has done his share of hard work. It's about God pouring his mission, his life into us as people. God calls us to be his shepherds, to be his servants, to love the church that he has given his life for. And so, as a last invitation, a last plea for them to enter into the work of that grace, Paul holds out his own two hands to them. Right, this is the last image he gives them. He says, look at my two hands. Right, I've labored with them all the time I've been with you. I've labored with them for years in the mission of God. Right, they're, they're, they're calloused hands. They're working hands. But Paul shows them his hands, I think, not to gain their admiration, not to even appeal to their sense of duty, Paul shows them his hands because he wants them to know that all of his toil, all of his hardship, all of his sacrifice, he says, have been worth it. it. They are immensely valuable. They are precious in God's sight. And he says, more than the comfort I could have received from fine clothing or riches or gold, Paul says, I have been building with God in mission I've built upon the foundation of God's inheritance. And so he says, to quote Jesus, it has been more blessed to give, to pour my life out, than to take my life, than to receive it on my own accord. So Paul walks his friends back to the ship. He gets on, he sails off to Jerusalem, never to be seen in Ephesus again. But I think Paul concludes, he he leaves with them that reminder, right, that it has been worth it to pour his life out. It has been worth it to labor with his blood and sweat and tears on behalf of the church. He's passing the torch on to them. And this is what he invites them to now receive. It is better enter into this gift to be poured out in this gift because this is what God himself has given his life for let me pray for us in that mission as a church Lord I thank you for each life that you have called into mission with you those who are seated in these pews this morning, those who are with us watching at home. Lord, you have called us together for a purpose and for a mission that is costly, but is vital and is worth it. Lord, I thank you for those who have run this race and are nearing its completion. Lord, may we receive their legacy. May we receive the baton, the torch from them. Pray for those who are coming up in our midst, whose hands are ready, whose whose spirits and lives have been gifted and filled to take your mission into the future in this place. Lord, fill them with courage to keep imitating, to keep growing. And Lord, would you surround us, root us in your grace to us today, your living word spoken again and again. For only you have the words that can edify and cause a church that will endure and remain in mission for generations to come. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.